Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice with a news bonus, a comprehensive look at the state of prisons and jails in the COVID-19 pandemic. Usually I wouldn't start off with a date on any of these stories because we like to use them when we're ready to use them, but today is May 7th, and the reason I'm giving you that date is because this story is moving so rapidly. So I want you to have an exact peg on where it is in time I'm giving you the following. I want to talk for a few minutes, ladies and gentlemen, about what's happening in prisons and jails in this country as we watch the pandemic situation evolve day by day. As of this morning, that's May 7th, what we're seeing with this public health catastrophe, which extends around the world and across our country, is how it exposes and exacerbates existing problems, making them much sharper, more dangerous, and in many instances, impossible to ignore. We're seeing this with the way people's incomes have disappeared, people's jobs have gone away, people without health insurance, and of course, we are seeing them in the criminal justice sphere and nowhere more sharply than with prisons and jails. The impacts on prisons and jails and the people who we have sent there on sentences or who we are not allowing to leave, even though they are legally innocent, those impacts have been substantial. They're getting larger and we're heading for some really disastrous consequences. And we're seeing not just outbreaks of the disease that will have devastating consequences for the health and lives of the people inside and the staffs. We're seeing very clear evidence that we don't care about these people, uh, that we see them as less than us. And of course, with a prison and jail system that contains a population that we know is racially skewed with disproportionate numbers of black and brown people inside, our acceptance of this situation tells us once again uh, that we as a society are okay with racially skewed disadvantages in our society. And in this case, those disadvantages can literally mean the difference between life and death. So as I said, what we're seeing is something that exposes and exacerbates existing problems and existing mistakes. So um, are we seeing this with other justice system workers? Of course, police officers, prosecutors and public defenders, parole and probation officers, court personnel, all of them, but nowhere is the impact going to be as devastating or as deep as in prisons and jails. Uh, First, uh, let's make sure that we're all on the same page with regard to our terms. Prisons, what exactly does that mean? Prisons are these places where we send people who are convicted of crimes. Uh, They are sentenced, usually for a sentence of one year or more. And I make that distinction because some people on less than a year long sentences may in some jurisdictions be sentenced to a county jail. More about that in a second. But for the great bulk of people who are sentenced on crimes, who have been convicted with a trial or a plea uh, and they get a sentence, they're going to a 
prison. There are federal prisons, of course, but the great bulk of people are in state prisons. For instance, my state, Pennsylvania, holds 48,000 people right now in its state prison system. By contrast, every jail in the state of Pennsylvania, um, which are local facilities, those hold only 37,000, and federal prisons in Pennsylvania hold only 7,500. So those are prisons, prisons holding people on sentences who are already found guilty. Now, jails, by contrast, jails are local facilities. They are put together and funded and the under the jurisdiction of counties in my state of Pennsylvania. In some states, uh, county jails will be facilities for several counties. Those are usually called a district of some kind. But for the vast majority of counties in the United States, they have a local jail. And those facilities hold mostly people waiting for trial or waiting to be sentenced. And they're waiting there before trial because they can't afford bail, okay? There are a few people in jails, like I said a minute ago, who are there on short sentences, usually less than a year. But the vast majority are there because they have been arrested. A judge has sent an amount of cash bail money that they have to put up in order to get out. And they can't afford it. Even if it's only $100, $250, $500, they simply can't afford it. They're as innocent as the day they were born. But as criminal injustice listeners know, um, the cash bail system keeps them inside prior to trial with bad consequences for their cases, for their life chances, for their things like housing, uh, a car, a job, all those things uh, deteriorate for each day that they are in awaiting trial. But that's that's a jail, okay? So most people are in jails uh, waiting for trial. Now, the basic problem that we're facing in this country, and we have faced for a long time with some dawning realization over the last five to ten years, is that we have far too many people in prisons and jails in this country. And in prisons, we have far too many on very, very long sentences. Uh, you're probably familiar with the basic statistics. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. We give sentences in this country that are far longer than any other developed country in the world hands out, than really than almost any other country anywhere, including life without parole sentences. In this country, we give life without parole sentences even to juveniles. That just isn't done elsewhere. So we have a huge prison population uh, combined with jails. It is over two and a half million Americans incarcerated. Um, now, uh, what's going to happen with this disease approaching our prisons and jails? Well, we've talked about this here before, but let me review. Consider the basic prison or jail environment. If you've ever been in a prison or jail, uh, either serving a sentence or you go there for your work or to visit someone, uh, you'll understand immediately what I'm talking about. Here are the salient facts about the prison or jail environment. Uh, usually, number one, uh, it's crowded. 
Uh, we put in two people for every small cell, a cell being the size of a large closet or a bathroom. Um, or we put them in dorm style settings or barracks style settings, a large room with hundreds of people living in beds put close together, uh, everybody having just a small amount of square footage, uh, not a lot of extra room in there. That means that social distancing, the main tool we seem to have in this country to flatten the curve, to, to get things uh, to a better place, social distancing is basically impossible. All right. Fact number two, prisons and jails are dirty and unsanitary. Don't get me wrong. They do their best to do some cleaning inside. There, there's regular cleaning and mopping and things like that that go on. But prisons are filthy. I mean, anybody who lives in one, who's been in one, will tell you that. And th there isn't enough in the way of the things we want people to do now to do stuff like wash their hands. There isn't enough plumbing, uh, sinks, soap. Uh, you can't have sanitizer in there. It's basically contraband in most prisons and jails for various reasons. And there have been many stories about prisons banning masks for the people who are incarcerated. Point number three, health care uh, within the prison or jail setting is really not something uh, that comes to a level that would be acceptable on the outside. Uh, the healthcare system, if you want to call it that, within most prisons and jails is very small, it's inadequate, it doesn't give uh, a substantial amount of treatment, it's very hard to get to see uh, the healthcare people in prisons or jails. Uh, nobody would accept that level of care on the outside. So with those things in mind, what is likely to happen uh, in the prisoner jail setting with COVID-19 on the march everywhere. Um, well, uh, no surprise here. It will, uh, if it has not already, break out in prisons and jails, and eventually it's going to overrun almost all of them. Um, it is going to be a catastrophe for incarcerated populations. And by the way, it's not going to just infect the incarcerated people in prisons and jails. It will also impact and infect the correctional staff, all of the staff, not just the guards either, not just the COs. Uh, these places will become, they have already become in some circumstances, in some places, COVID-19 hotspots with huge and growing numbers of people infected. And it's not going to stay within the walls. All right. We, we, you know, we build big walls. We put guards in towers with guns and we put up barbed wire. We can keep the inmates inside. We can keep the incarcerated people, excuse me, inside. We cannot keep the virus inside. Um, um, it's not going to stay in there. Uh, for prisons, all of this, an obvious problem. You're going to have people getting infected, um, uh, whether they are incarcerated people or staff. Uh, for jails, uh, the problem may not be quite what you'd expect because in certain ways, it's worse. Um, jails don't hold people on long sentences. Uh, that means, uh, and it's part of how jails operate, there's a lot more turnover in jail 
uh, populations than in prisons. All right. So envision how a jail works. Every time somebody is arrested, they get processed through the county jail. Even if they make bail the next day, the next morning after an arrest, they're in that jail for some period of time. Their clothing is taken. Uh, they put on jail uh, a paraphernalia. They're inside with the other people. And if that person bails out the next day, Everything that was inside now comes outside, okay? Um, for people who wait two and three days, their exposure is two or three times as long. Uh, and for people who are in there, they have sometimes they have visitors. And, of course, the staff is going in and out with every shift. Uh, with that kind of turnover, it's just constant, all right? So in a, at a big prison, a prison of 1,000 or 2,000 incarcerated people, you will have some number of people coming in every day, newly sentenced folks coming in, and some number of people going out every day, people whose sentences are over. But the turnover is comparatively small uh, next to what you see with an average city or county jail. And that's another thing. Every big city has big jails. And so they're within the city. Uh, and those are going to be hot spots that are going to leak out into the surrounding city uh, all the time. Um, so what can we do? What should we be doing? And then what are we actually seeing? Okay. So what we should do, obviously, is get people out. Now, get as many people out as we can. Um, has this happened? Well, yes, but in numbers that are far too small. Um, they are not big enough to stop or even slow the outbreaks. What we're hearing from our political leaders, our prosecutors, uh, even some judges and others, um, yes, we'll get out all the nonviolent first-time offender drug crime sentences. Uh, yeah, good. It's all to the good, but, uh, you know, that's a very small percentage of the people who are there. Uh, we have to come to grips with our much larger problem that we've generally ignored. And here I come back to my first point, uh, the idea that this is exposing and exacerbating existing problems problems. In prisons, um, the, the, the nonviolent offenders, the first-time drug offenders, those kind of people, those don't make up the bulk of the people inside. It's people who are in on what we would call violent crimes and on very long sentences for multiple years, not even two and three and five years, but longer. That's the great part of our prison population. Um, uh, we're looking at people who we have scheduled to be in there a very long time for burglary, for robbery, for assault. And we need to ask, can those people be released? Is there a reason to keep them in? Our usual instinct, the way we have always thought of incarceration over these last few decades is, of course we keep them in. They did something bad, they stay in, we give them tough sentences because we're tough on crime. Well, what we're seeing is the result of that. And in fact, we know, we can be certain that most of those people are very low risk. What do I mean by that? Well, there's decades and decades now 
of research. Uh, uh, the, one of the leaders in this field is a fellow named Al Blumstein, who's a friend and who teaches here in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University. And it was his work that really led the way for, to people understanding the following. Crime is a young person's game. All right. Of course, there are exceptions, but the great bulk of crime is committed by people in their younger years. Uh, For adults, people from the ages of 18 to, let's say, 35. Once a person is over 35, the risk of reoffending, the risk especially of, of, of further violent crimes, goes way, way down. That life is just not appealing to those people. They don't have the stamina for it. They don't want to go back to prison for it. Um, and their risk of reoffending once they hit that age begins to drop and drop and drop some more. So um, uh, as uh, one of the commentators I recently saw Um, uh, Joe Margulies wrote this great piece that I highlighted in one of our Read This segments. Uh, You could take every person out of prison who's over 50 years old, and there are a lot of them in our state prisons. All those people should be gone, right? We have elderly people in prison. Not only are they at high risk for COVID, uh, they're very expensive to maintain in prison, You've got to treat them like the elderly people there are in one of the most expensive institutional environments that we have, prison. Those people should all go home. I'd go further than that. Everybody over age 40 should just be released. But we're not doing that. We're not willing to actually rethink our long-term beliefs and policies about how we treat so-called violent criminals. Uh, And until we do that, we are not only going to have a catastrophe with prisons and COVID-19, we're not going to actually see our problems for what they are. And we're going to keep ignoring them. So where are we? What are we actually doing? If that's what we should be doing, what are we actually doing? By April 29th, uh, these figures were culled from the Marshall Project. Um, If you don't read the Marshall Project and you are interested in criminal justice, you are missing out. You got to get to this every single day, get their newsletter sent to you every morning. It is one of the best sources out there. So by April 29th, Almost 15,000 people in prisons nationwide had tested positive uh, for COVID-19, even though testing is just as difficult to come by in prison as it is on the outside or more. Uh, Jumping to May 5th, uh, in Tennessee, according to reports on May 5th, a massive outbreak was building in Tennessee prisons, particularly in a private prison called the Truesdale Turner Correctional Center, which is run by the private prison company Core Civic. Uh, when cases uh, began to accelerate inside, uh, they got busy with testing. They did over 2,700 tests uh, within that prison. Half, half came back positive, 1,350. Now think about that for a minute. The county in which that prison sits now faces an absolutely urgent emergency. I'll quote here from uh, the uh, chair of the county commission who was quoted in the New York Times, quote, it's been my worst nightmare since the beginning 
of this, that this would happen, he said, referring to the outbreak at the prison. Quote again, I've been expecting this. You put that many people in a contained environment and all it takes is one. Close quote. As of May 5th, ABC News reported that over 5,000 correctional officers at state and federal prisons nationwide had tested positive for COVID-19. According to one report, 38 correctional officers have died from the disease. Also from ABC News, at Terminal Island Federal Prison in San Pedro, California, the spread of the disease uh, is reported to be one of the highest in the country. As of Wednesday, May 6th, more than half of the inmates, that's 570 inmates, had the virus, along with 10 members of the staff. What about some other states? As of April 29th in Ohio, uh, a rate of almost 8,000 per 100,000 inmates uh, had the virus in Ohio. There were 29 deaths. That's 59 deaths per 100,000 inmates. Uh, Michigan, 3,747 cases per 100,000 inmates. 41 deaths for a rate of 109 per 100,000. My state makes a nice contrast, Pennsylvania, because there's only 107 known cases. 107. That means very little testing, right? Uh, per uh, 107 per 100,000, seven deaths per 100,000. Prisons in Kansas, Mississippi, and South Carolina are all struggling with COVID outbreaks. South Carolina corrections officials have actually called for help from their state's National Guard. In Palestine, Texas, spelled like Palestine, but pronounced Palestine, a small Texas town with five state prisons. Uh, it is by far the largest employer in that Texas county. The COVID uh, outbreak has spread widely to and from these prisons, and the town's institutions and health care outlets may soon be overwhelmed. Vermont, a judge working toward releasing more people from the state's prisons, has been stymied by state prosecutors and members of the state legislature. Federal prison guards in West Virginia are calling for the ouster of the head of the Federal Bureau of Prisons over its handling of COVID-19. The federal prison in Elkton, Ohio, seeing a huge outbreak. Officials nevertheless delaying the release and transfer of medically vulnerable incarcerated people there. COVID-19 cases rising at the federal prison in Fort Dix, New Jersey. Correctional officers fearing for themselves and their families every time they go to work. In Texas, 15,000 people granted parole cannot get out of prison because the required programs they must complete before release can't be completed because everybody is locked down. That's the picture of what's really happening in prisons. We should be releasing them by the hundreds of thousands, and yet we have this. What about jails? Well, people inside jails, as we've talked about on criminal injustice, people who are there because they can't make money bail, they simply shouldn't be there. I mean, there is something wrong with that system, a system in which if you are guilty as hell, but you can raise the money for bail, you get out. 
But if you are as innocent as the day you were born, but you don't have 250 bucks to pay your bail, you stay in. That is just not right. We shouldn't be doing this. Uh, so are things any better in the jail setting than the prison setting? Um, we should uh, note that there are jails across the country that have made some strides, but we shouldn't be just shaving off 10 or 20 percent of the population. No one should be inside because they can't raise money. No one should be exposed to a deadly disease because they don't have 250 or 500 dollars. So what's actually going on? Well, right here in my county, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, uh, there have been releases of inmates, very slow, uh, but releases. Uh, they have released 1,150 inmates, but that still leaves over 1,600 as of April 28. As of that date, there were 19 reported cases. I would say expect many more. Another jail story, federal appeals court uh, overturned a trial court's order in Florida requiring distribution of masks, soap, and cleaning supplies to those held in Miami-Dade's jail. So that's the federal appeals court overturning an order that inmates be protected with those things. Thousands of people held in jails in places like Illinois and Louisiana are unable to argue for their release because of the scaled-down availability of court time. Guards at the Oakland County, Michigan jail threatening prisoners. Well, that's not unusual. How are they threatening them? By saying that they will put them into areas along with people diagnosed with COVID-19. So, there's a summary. COVID-19 this pandemic reaching prisons and jails, uh, what it's doing is not only endangering lives, the lives of people inside on sentences or being held before trial, but the lives of correctional staff as well, uh, exposing and exacerbating all of society's problems, including the problems involved in mass incarceration in prisons and jails. Um, and it's showing us that we have used incarceration far too widely in the last several decades. It's showing us that we have sentenced to people to, to, to terms of incarceration that are far too long to make sense uh, uh, when you look at it in terms of rehabilitation. Far too long when you look at it in, in the sense of public safety. And even now, when we know that long sentences like this, that we refuse to give up on, may mean death to a lot of these people, we have not brought ourselves as a country to the point of rethinking this. We prefer to simply throw away these human beings. We prefer to not think of the fact that this will fall disproportionately on people of color. We prefer not to value their lives. Now think about that. 
That's it for this bonus edition of Criminal Injustice, the effects of COVID-19 in prisons and jails. We're always here to bring you the latest news on the criminal justice system. Just go to our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com. You'll see there our latest news bonuses, our features, and the interviews that we have archived with the most interesting folks in the criminal justice sphere. I'm David Harris. I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.